tonight we're going to see the next thing that they deal with, which happens to be internal strife and division. How many of you like strife and division? Please don't raise your hand. (laughs) Man, I don't like strife and division. But you know, in the midst of this great work for a great God came a great cry. And that's what we see here. Notice verse 1. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Note that. For there were those who said, we are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. Note that. And there were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. And yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren and our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them. For other men have our lands and our vineyards. So we see that there was a threefold problem that really led to this strife and division. There was number one, a famine. Number two, there was heavy taxation from the king. And number three, there were high interest payments on their loans. Who says the Bible isn't relevant, right? (laughs) We're dealing with all of that. But it speaks here of this overpopulation of famine and high taxes. And the interest rates were also higher than ever before with no relief in sight. And this heavy taxation was coming down from the king. This is the Persian king that was ruling the area at the time. And all the regions were taxed. And so in order to get food and pay their taxes this is what happened the people started borrowing against their farms and their homes now one of the things that you need to understand is there weren't banks at this time it wasn't like a b of a or a b of i a b of israel you know that they could go to so they were borrowing from wealthy jews And they were borrowing from rulers and nobles. But there were two problems associated with what was happening. The problem, the first problem is that the rulers and the people that were giving these loans were charging interest. And the second problem was that when someone couldn't pay back their loan, the the lenders were taking their homes, they were taking their land, and in some cases they were even taking their children and turning them into slaves. And so because of this, this great work being done for a great God comes to a screeching halt because of this great outcry. So Nehemiah has to take off his hard hat and turn his attention from the construction on the wall to the walls and the barriers of strife and division that were being built up between the people of God. Now, God clearly outlined rules in his word for lending and borrowing. 
They were allowed to lend, but they were not allowed to charge interest. Consider, should be on the screen, Exodus twenty two twenty five says, If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him, and you shall not charge him interest. God made that very, very clear. Wouldn't that be great if that was true today? <laughs> Deuteronomy 23 says, You shall not charge interest to your brother. Interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. Interesting. He said, with your Jewish brethren, you don't charge interest. Now, foreigner, you can charge them interest, but not your Jewish brethren. In Leviticus 25, he says, if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at profit. So this practice that God had forbade was happening where they were charging interest and because their their brothers and sisters couldn't pay instead of seeking to help them they were taking their land and they were even taking their children and this was something that God had forbidden again Leviticus 29 or 2539 says this, and if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as his slave. So if he's offering himself, you say no. And as a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you and he and his children with him and he shall return to his own family and he shall return to the possessions of the father. So the idea was, hey, he can work for you, but he's not going to be your slave. And so God forbade this and God set up this incredible practice amongst the people of Israel that's referenced here. It was in the 50th year called the year of Jubilee. I mean, this is so incredibly amazing that all debts were forgiven. Isn't that amazing? 50th year comes around, and it's like clean slate. Wouldn't that be awesome? And that's what God did with the people. All the servants were set free at that time, and everyone was on their own. All debts were forgiven. forgiven. So these rulers and nobles are clearly acting in a way that's contrary to the word of God in their exploitation of their Jewish brothers and sisters. So this whole situation was causing strife and division amongst the people of God. And it was threatening to kill the work that God was wanting them to do. And strife and division are two things throughout the ages of the church that have caused the, the, the work of God's church to cease, to be hindered. In fact, it's interesting. You know when... A church, when, and, and just kind of common knowledge, statistically speaking, when most churches encounter or have a time of strife and division and, and when church splits happen, anybody have an idea when, when the most common time that is? Anybody want to guess? 
It's during a building project. Isn't that interesting? It's during a building project when they're like getting a, a new building or something they want to move into. That's the most common time amongst, statistically speaking, that churches end up having strife and divisions because they can't agree on anything. And so we see this is a building project of God that he's doing. And the, the, this, this strife and division is, is coming against it. And you know what? The same thing happens though in our families. Strife and division can kill the work that God's wanting to do in your family. He can kill the work that he's wanting to do amongst friends. You know, I think Christians too often forget what we're told in Proverbs chapter 6. In Proverbs chapter 6, we're told that there's a, a list given there in verses 16 through 19 of six things that the Lord hates. And then he says this, yea, seven are an abomination to me. Now that's pretty serious language, isn't it? That God says, hey, these are six things that I hate. Actually, these are six, seven things that are an abomination to me. And number seven on the list is he who sows discord amongst his brethren. Isn't that heavy? It's heavy. But we see that happen so often in the body of Christ. And here in Nehemiah chapter 5, discord was threatening the work of God. And this is all too common today in our culture it's all too common today. I mean, isn't it in our country? I mean, we see we are a nation that is divided. And I'll tell you, I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't even know if there's any hope, to be honest with you, for the big C church on this level, for the, on, a, on a national level. I think only, it's only until when Jesus comes back that, that we will be unified. But on a smaller local level, as it relates to our church, our families, our friendships. I think we can glean some great insight here from Nehemiah on how to deal with strife and division. I want you to notice in verse 6, Nehemiah's reaction. He says, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He gets ticked off. This reminds us, guys, that anger is not always a bad thing. We're told in Ephesians chapter 4 to be angry, but don't sin. So anger in and of itself, it's, it's an emotional reaction. It's a normal emotional reaction that only becomes sin when we allow it to fester. Nehemiah becomes angry and i think that that strife and division and injustice should bother us i mean when do we see jesus filled with righteous indignation you know jesus when you know we we love the pictures of him with the little children on his knee or the little lamb on his shoulders but but what about rambo jesus you know who forms a whip and goes into the temple and he's turning over the tables and he's driving out the money changers he's cracking that whip and he didn't do that just once he did that twice he did it in the very beginning of his ministry and the very end of his ministry Jesus did that. Why did he do it? Because he saw the injustice that was going on in the people of Israel. That they were being taken advantage of by the religious leaders. And it really, really bothered him. He was filled with a righteous indignation. And and that's what's happening here. 
with Nehemiah. The first reaction we see is one of anger, but we can all learn from his second reaction. Look at at verse 7, it says, and after serious thought. I love that. Literally, it could say, "And, and after I consulted with myself. Aren't you glad that's there? And after I consulted with myself. Yeah, he got mad. But before he did anything and before he said anything, he consulted with himself. Nehemiah followed David's advice in Psalm 4 verse 4 that says, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. You know, sometimes, guys, the best thing you can do is sleep on it. The best thing you can do is just just rest. I, I know early on in my Christian walk and in my early days of ministry, I used to react right away all the time. And it usually was always bad. Always bad. But I have learned the practice of consulting with myself and consulting with the Lord. Sleeping on things, praying through things, allowing my heart to kind of rest, heal, settle down before I engage or confront. It's so important. Heart preparation is so important. I have to prepare my heart every day before I come to work. And I work here at a church. I can imagine how much you guys need to prepare your hearts in the places where you're working. And I have to prepare my heart every day when I'm driving home to go and be with my family. You have to learn to do that. That heart preparation is so incredibly important. So Nehemiah was wise enough to pause and pray and reflect before acting. And after thinking it through, Nehemiah decides to confront the problem head on. Look at verse 7. It says that he rebuked the nobles and the rulers. Now, why did he rebuke these guys, the ruling elite? Well, they were the ones with the money. They were the ones that were exacting interest on those who didn't have. They were the ones who were giving these loans. They were the ones who were were responsible for this oppression on the laborers. Now, this is something worth noting, though. I want you to note this. Nehemiah went right to the source of the problem. He didn't go around to other people going, "Can can you believe what these guys are doing? Did you hear what they're charging so-and-so? Did you hear that they took, you know, so-and-so's daughter to be their slave? He doesn't do any of that. He goes right to the source. He goes right to the problem. You know, I see this happen a lot with people where they, 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 instead of going to the source, they go to other people. And I think oftentimes they do that to kind of build up a case for their cause. Nehemiah doesn't do that. He goes to these guys directly. And I got to tell you, I get so upset when somebody in the body comes to me to complain about somebody else in the body. And when they do that, I'll say, wait, 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 wait. Have you talked to them? No, no, I haven't talked to them. Okay, end of conversation. You go talk to them and... After you've talked to them, if I still need to be involved and play a mediator, then we can do that. We can all come together and we can talk to it. But you need to first go and talk to them. That's how you deal with strife and division. 
That's what Nehemiah does here. We can really learn from this. And I want you to notice that Nehemiah is going to appeal to them in four areas that I think are really, really insightful for for us to take note of here. Four areas that are applicable to all of us when we find ourselves in a situation where, where there's strife and division and, and how we can bring you know that strife and division that we can seek to bring peace and, and bring a solution to the problem. I want you to take note of what he does. Number one, he appeals to their family connection. Look at verse seven again. He says, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting you usury from his brother. And he uses that word brother four different times in his speech. He's, he's, he's calling the fact that they're connected, that they're brothers, that they're, they're family. You know, when we use that phrase here, you know, we, speak, we talk about our church family. We're not trying to be trendy or we're, we're not trying to be cute. We really truly believe we're a family. We're connected by blood. Do you realize that? We, the Bible says we are brothers. We are connected not by, you know, our blood. We're connected by his blood. The blood of Jesus Christ is what connects us as brothers and our dear sisters on the other side of the wall there. We're connected to each other by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are a family and the Bible expects us to act like a family. Consider 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters, with all purity. Think that. Think about that. He's saying, okay, all you younger guys here, all you guys under, you know, 30, I guess, you need to treat the older guys like dads, like fathers. And all of you, you know, older guys and, and, and you younger guys with your younger brothers, you, know, you need to treat them like older guys, treat them like sons, and, and, and younger guys with younger guys, treat them like brothers. And the ladies, we need to treat the older ladies like moms. And we do it, and the sisters, you know, the the younger gals like sisters. And we do that, he says, with a sense of of purity. And the idea of that is is like in the best sense. I know some some of you are thinking like, oh man, my dad and I used to duke it out, you know, and my brothers, we fought all the time. This is in the best sense. This is in, in the, the absolute sincerity and love. It's like the ideal, you know, you're picturing like the ideal family. That's, that's how we're to treat each other, to approach each other. Paul the Apostle said something in 1 Corinthians 8 that has always kind of haunted me. He said this, that when we sin against our brother, in reality, we're sinning against Jesus. Because we're all a part of his body. Just let that sink in for a minute. When you sin against your brother, when you sin against your sister, you're sinning against Jesus because we're all a part of his body. And if we thought about that a little bit, don't you think that would kind of change the way that we react and talk and interact and, you know, get upset with each other about the most petty and stupid things? So strife and division and gossip, it weakens the body and it's sinning against the Lord. You know, there was a father who came upon his sons and they were fighting with one another. 
So he grabbed them all, lined up, and he took the biggest, the strongest, the oldest of his sons, and he gave him a stick, and he said, here, break this. And his son broke the stick. So then he gave him two sticks. He says, okay, break these. And he broke those. And he says, okay, and he gave him three sticks. He says, okay, now break these. And he broke those. And then he gave him four sticks. He says, okay, break these. And he couldn't break them. And the dad said, you know, on your own, you can easily be broken. But together, you're strong. And the same thing is true in the body of Christ. That's why we're to be this band of brothers that we're connected together. We're connected to one another. In Psalm 133, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. God looks down tonight, all of you guys here, and he's like, Oh, this blesses my heart. The guys coming together in unity to seek me, to talk about me, to draw near to me, that blesses the heart of God. So number one, Nehemiah appealed to their family connection. Number two, he reminded them of God's redemptive plan. Look at the second part of verse seven. He says, so I called an assembly against them and I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. And now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? And then they were silenced and found nothing to say. He reminded them, he's saying, guys, we're a redeemed people. He's given them the big picture. God has redeemed us out of the nations. You guys know our history, starting with with Babylon. And even before that, it was Egypt. And God has redeemed us out of bondage. And we celebrate, you know, I can see him talking about, we celebrate every year the Passover and the Passover lamb and, and this redemption that God brought to us. And Nehemiah's question to them is is so simple. He's, how can you put your brothers and sisters back into bondage? We're a redeemed people, guys. We've been, and the same thing is true with us. We're a redeemed people. We've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. And but we in the body of Christ need to be really, really careful that we don't put redeemed people back into bondage. You know how we do that? By laying guilt trips on people. By putting expectations and rules on them that aren't in the Bible. So we need to be careful not to do that. And so we see here Nehemiah number one, he appealed to their family connection. Number two, he appealed to God's redemptive plan. Number three, he appealed to their fear of the Lord. Look at verse nine. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? You know, the idea of the fear of the Lord is such an amazing concept in the Bible. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. You ever want to do a great study? Study the idea of the fear of the Lord in the Bible. But the fear of the Lord speaks of a reverence and a respect for God. It's not, it's not talking about a, you know, oh, if I step out of line, God's going to bang me over the head. No, no, no. It's speaking of a reverence and a respect for the Lord. It's speaking of the fact that, that you are caught up in and preoccupied with his glory, his name. 
That there is this desire inside of you because you reverence him and respect him and you realize that this amazing God who created the heavens and the earth and, and by the word of his mouth and he sustains it all by the word of his mouth and, and he's the one that is the alpha and the omega that, that he desires a relationship with you and with me. And that just blows you away to the fact that you're just like, man, I can't believe this. And so you, you want to honor that and you want to live in honor of that, that you in no way want to, to grieve him. That's what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. It means that I'm looking out for not what's best for me, but what's, what's best in God's eyes. It's God's will that I'm concerned about. It's God's way that I'm concerned about. It's God's glory that I'm concerned about. That's my motivator. And so he's appealing to this, that, that hey guys, you know, we, we, need to, we need to be walking in the fear of God. And you're not walking in the fear of God because you're doing exactly what God said not to do. But then he also says another motivator though, it's the end of this verse, it's not just desiring to please God, but it's also realizing that the enemies, the nations around us are watching. This is number four. He appeals to their witness. That's what he means when he says, what you are doing is a reproach. It's a bad witness to the nations around us. And he's basically saying, guys, look, we're supposed to be different. We're the people of God. We're supposed to be different from them. And you know, that's true. You and I, we're the people of God. We're supposed to be different from the people that we work with, the people that we live by. We're, we're supposed to be different in the way that we treat one another and, and approach one another. Remember, Jesus said, and, and it's by your love, they're going to know that you're my disciples, by your, the love that you have from one another. So what these nobles and rulers were doing was very common amongst the Gentile nations. And they were acting just like the Gentiles. And so Nehemiah's point with this, the Gentiles look on and say, hey, they're just like us. They're no different from us. And you know what? You know who applauds the loudest when churches split and scandals happen in the church? It's people that don't know and don't, don't believe in God and don't know God. It's like, they're just like us. We're supposed to be different. And guys, we need to see the bigger picture. And I want you just to think about this tonight. This is the big picture. You exist for God. You exist for him. You don't exist for you. Get that out of your mind. That you exist for you. That it's all about you. No, we exist for God. You know, the Bible says that we're the light of the world. A city set upon a hill. And there's a lot of cities set upon a hill. Look up. Later on, go look up cities on a hill. There's some cities on hills today that are really ugly. Like there's nothing to, you know, look at. Like, oh gosh, who'd, who'd want to live there? Jesus doesn't say you're supposed to be a light of the world. He says, no, you're the light of the world. You're a light. You're a city on a hill. Yeah, every single one of us. The question is, what kind of city are we on that hill? What are people going to see? 
So Nehemiah appeals to their witness. And then what we see next is after confronting them, Nehemiah doesn't stop there, but he proceeds to instruct them. And I want to just real quickly look at a few things here. Look at verse 10. He says, I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. So please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands and their vineyards and their olive groves and their houses and also a hundredth of the money and the grain and the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. In essence, Nehemiah is saying this, guys, you need to do the right thing. You need to do the right thing. You need to restore what you have taken. And there, the reference to the hundredth part was the interest that they were charging for the money. And I want you to notice their response. Verse 12, it says, And so they said, we will restore it and require nothing from them, and we will do as you say. So it got through to them. They heard it. The next thing he does, though, is really interesting, is he wants to hold them accountable. Look at the second part of verse 12. Then I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to the promise. And as I picture this scene in my mind, I see Nehemiah pointing to the money lenders and saying, hey, you need to make a promise to these workers. You need to take, make a promise to these people that you've been, you know, that you've been usurping money from, that you've that put these burdens on. You need to, to, to make a promise to them. And then he looks at the priests and said, and you guys need to remember their promise before God. In other words, you need to hold them to this. He was asking the priests to hold them spiritually accountable. And I want to just camp out here for a minute. Because I want us to think about this. I want you guys to talk about this tonight in your groups. Nehemiah is asking them to not just see the situation practically or rationally, but spiritually. And we need to do that a lot more. We need to see the situations that we are in spiritually. We need to, to see the, the spiritual covenants that we make with one another. I'll give you an example. On, on Saturday, I'm doing a wedding out in Temecula. And every time I do a wedding, I always make it very, very clear that that couple is not just making a covenant when they exchange their vows with one another. But they are making a covenant with one another and with God. You realize that your marriage vows, it was not just a covenant between you and your wife. It was a covenant between you and your wife and you and God. And her and you and her and God. And when we approach everything in our life in that way, in our relationships in that way, it just brings everything to a, a heightened reality. And meaning. And I think that that's what he's doing here. He's saying, okay, he's not just pulling in the workers and the lenders and saying, okay, you guys need to forgive their debt. You need to to restore to them. He brings in the spiritual leaders and says, and you need to hold them to this. I think that's really, really interesting. Now, Nehemiah concludes this meeting with a very serious visual illustration. Look at verse 13. He says, Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. 
Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. That's heavy, isn't it? And then I want you to see how he wraps up the chapter. He points to his example when he becomes governor, one of blessing, being a blessing and being willing to sacrifice for others. Notice he picks up verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions, so he sacrificed. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine and besides the 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Note that. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall and we did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered there for work and at my table were 150 Jews and rulers and besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep and also fowl were prepared for me and every and once every 10 days an abundance of all kind of wine yet in in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provision because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, O God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. The example of Nehemiah here is one that reminds us of a very, very important biblical truth. It's one of our core values here at Calvary Vista. And it's this, that those who have been blessed have been blessed to be a blessing. Nehemiah is in a position that he has provision, but what's he doing? He's sharing his provision with everybody because he realized, I've been blessed to be a blessing. And I just got to say, if God has blessed you with means, he's blessed you so you can be a blessing to others. If God has blessed you in your life, he hasn't just blessed you so you can have it easier than everybody else. He's blessed you so that you can be a blessing to others. In the list of spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12, do you reckon, realize that one of the gifts is giving? And the Bible talks about that there's the great reward for that. It's helping others, support the work of God, supporting missions. If you've been blessed, you've been blessed in order to be a blessing. We see Nehemiah is a great example of that. And so we see through him coming and reminding of the people of their family connection reminding them that they have been redeemed, reminding them of, of, to walk in the fear of God, reminding them of their witness, this strife and division was dealt with, and there was peace, and everybody got back on the same page again, and they started building the wall again. It's a great example for us of how to deal with and handle strife and division. And we're going to just talk about this a little bit more tonight in your, in your groups around the circle. So let's pray, and then uh, you guys can jump into those. Father, we, we thank you. We praise you, God, for this uh, great example that we see in Nehemiah. And I pray right now that as these guys get into their um, discussion groups, that, that there would just be a, a sense of openness and, and a sense of just learning from one another. Brothers, sharpening brothers in you. In Jesus' name, amen.